Welcome to the October edition of Cinetopia. I'm Amanda. I run Cinetopia, an organization that aims to foster discussion around film and filmmaking based in Edinburgh. I'm here with Jim Ross, co-producer of the show and managing editor of Take One Magazine. How are you, Jim? I'm good. I'm good. Been at a lot of film festivals online, I take it? Yeah, a lot of film festivals from my the, the the screen that I'm now looking at that you in actually. Yeah, I've gone precisely nowhere, but I've been to a lot of film festivals. So well, you have you. been to the cinema because I saw you there. I know, <laughs> first time in seven months. First time. Yeah. We randomly picked the same um, row and uh, but very socially distanced uh, at the lovely film house. So that was that was really fun. Um, we'll talk about that later. We're also here. I'm also here with L. Haywood, associate editor of Take One magazine, but also um, a master's student in film curation. Correct, L. It's good to see you again. Lovely to see you again. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, and you've been seeing a lot of films of in the London Film Festival, which we'll talk about later, but how has that experience been for you overall? Honestly, knackering, but <laughs> I'm very happy to have seen, yeah, 30 new films after months of, yeah, waiting to get back. I haven't been back to the cinema yet, so this was a delight to see so much and watch so much, but after nine days... Um, I'm looking forward to not looking at a screen for a while. Yeah. yeah, and it kind of reminds us of the time when we were at film festivals like the London Film Festival or Berlin and we were just sitting in cinema, cinema, cinema for like all day. It's not occurring no matter which which way you do it, for sure. Okay, so we're also here with Stephanie Brown, who is a freelance film critic and also a contributor with Take One magazine. How are you, Stephanie? I'm great, thank you. Thanks, Amanda. And how has your month been in terms of watching films? Have you gone to the cinema yet? Or are you uh, just um, watching stuff online continually? Um, mostly streaming online. I think that um, I have been going back to cinema quite recently, I think. with Obviously, with the COVID measures, it's not been quite as easy. But um, slowly but surely getting back into um, a, a, good, a good viewing sphere. So um, that may, ho hopefully that may continue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Today we're reviewing quite a few films. Uh, the first one is On the Rocks, which is Sofia Coppola's latest film starring Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. We're also reviewing a film uh, called 40-Year-Old Version, which is on Netflix. It's a first feature directed by and starring Rada Blank. And then we're also reviewing St. Maud, which is directed by Rose Glass, a debut feature for this British filmmaker. Um, Jim and Elle will be talking about uh, their experience with the London Film Festival online this year in more detail and also reviewing the film Mogul Mowgli, directed by Bassam Tarek. Uh, Jim also sat down with Kathy Brady, director of Wildfire, uh, which premiered at the London Film Festival. And I spoke with Tallulah McGowan-Brown, who uh, runs social media at Edinburgh Spanish Film Festival, which is also online. And when we're airing this, uh, we'll have their final week and weekend so you should definitely check that out if you can. Good news for our own projects at Cinetopia, uh, specifically Cinescapes. Uh, we were able to, um, just give me a little update on this, we were able to uh, reach our target of £10,000 for our crowdfunder. And we also, through that, got awarded some funding from Creative Scotland and the Backer Business Match funding, which was really huge and amazing. So a big thank you to everybody who helped us from sharing 
and supporting and just um, and listening to us <laughs> talk about it. We're very excited to start it. As you can imagine, though, with lockdown and all those sort of things, uh, restrictions, we're hoping and aiming for a Christmas-themed um, launch in December. So hopefully next month we'll have some more details for you. And if you're hearing this today live, I hope that you'll join us for our online networking nights, which we do monthly on Zoom. Um, but if not, I'd also like to mention that we're doing a survey in the next few weeks around our aspirations and aims to connect the film community into a virtual hub. So if you consider yourself part of the film community, especially in the UK, but also just worldwide, if you're coming and listening worldwide, whether you're an enthusiast, critic, exhibitor, filmmaker, we'd love to hear from you um, just to kind of continue to talk about how Cenotopia can continue to reach its aims in the future. Um, but uh, speaking of film communities and uh, cinemas, it's been a really tough uh, month for us here, uh, like it, it, in the UK and the world, but um, there was some major announcements um, that, uh, that uh, Cineworld um, was, you know, going to shut for the foreseeable future, which also meant um, their owned cinemas as well. So things like Picture House, which is a beloved cinema here in Edinburgh, the the cameo, so that's closed for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm just going to ask the team here what everybody, you know, how's everyone doing with this news, or any thoughts and comments about about that. I think so, it's no. sad for everyone. I think that especially small kind of picture houses like the cameo and in, in, in the film house, we kind of rely on them to screen a lot of our. Um, art house showings that don't get the same exposure that they do at the more kind of popcorn venues but I think the closure of any cinema is um, quite disheartening for people in the creative community it's um, one of those things that um, is always meant to have a certain stability and it's just not received um, the help and the funding that it needed to um, carry on during this time I don't think so yeah it's, I think that it, it is sad especially you know when you experience it locally um, with everything going on uh, I I, I don't, I, it's, hard, it's bad to say, but I mean, I don't think that many people were too surprised about these closures. It was something that I think a lot of people did see coming. As soon as the the Bond film was canned, like, I think this was inevitable from a sort of a multiplex perspective. At the same time, you know, I mean, it's very disheartening. I mean, at the same time, I think if you're comfortable to, it's worth supporting the places that are still open, right? Which also kind of drove that, the visit that I made to Film House to watch on the rocks, which we're reviewing on on the the show later, I think it's important to do that if you feel happy to do so. Um, purely because there are other films out there. I mean, you know, I mean, like as Elle has already said, I mean, she's seen thirty new ones at London Film Festival. Um, there is stuff in the cinema, um, and I think at the same time there is perhaps a crumb of an opportunity here to show that there are other films out there that are not Fast and Furious 9, uh, Black Widow, Bond, Wonder Woman 84, which is really wrong. I mean, they're all films that, you know, I mean, I love a big blockbuster as much as the next person. I, I, I want to see these films. But, you know, there are still films being released. So while places are open, I think it's it's a good idea to try and help them out. Um what I will say is I don't think the government support has been all it could have been. Um, and I think that's probably the key thing. Um, 
there's a lot of places that are on an absolute knife edge, even with reopening. I mean, I saw something tweeted by Glasgow Film Theatre about the fact that even selling out their reduced capacity screen since they reopened, they are still losing money. You know, like Boris Johnson coming out and saying, oh, well, like, you know, people go to the cinema. Ah. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's just like, you need to hit, get your hand in your pocket. I mean, like, you know, if you can subsidize people to go eat Nando's for 10 quid less, then you can help out a few cinemas. But, you know, anyway, whatever. This is not this podcast and radio show is not the place for me to go on an anti-Tory rant. Um, I do that most other times. Like, there, there is there, there are issues, and I think the government needs to get its hand in its pocket because the cultural capital that this country generates, right, is dependent, I think, on particularly the cinema sphere, there being that that clear line, right, from production through distribution through to exhibition. And if you just leave one part of that to rot and die, then it's going to take a very long time to get it back. And I don't think the, the amount of jobs and, as I say, cultural capital as well that that creates is being grossly underestimated. Um, and I think that, for me, like... I'm not going to lie, I don't have any love lost for Cineworld as a corporate entity, but in terms of what that represents about what could be lost, it is pretty depressing. I think it's, it's what's been hard as well is seeing people who have jobs, not just within the cinemas, but also for the marketing teams, for the distribution, for acquisition. It was all tied in with the Picture House and the Cineworld as well, and that's such an important part of it. And as Jim highlights, the arts are always have always felt very underrated in this country for the fact that what as we've t- spoken about on the on Cinetopia before was the fact that while everyone's been sat at home, what have they been doing? They've been consuming art and culture because it's what happens, and people forget that they don't get that without people having jobs in creative industries and creative sectors, and that needs to be afforded. And if it's going to be left by the wayside once everything starts to settle back into a normal groove, if those end, if these places haven't been protected, they're not going to be there. And everyone's like, well, I don't know what to do now with myself. And so hopefully this is, it's united everyone in at least calling out. So it's brought all the art sectors together. You've seen theatres and like galleries supporting cinemas. You've seen kind of dance groups supporting musicians. Like you've seen venues all grouped together and have these conversations. So at the very least, it's brought everyone together to be like, we haven't felt respected enough. We need to be more respected. And I think the other thing that's come out of it is that quite a few other independent cinemas have been questioned to, okay, you're just about surviving. It's not ideal people losing money, but how are you keeping alive? And a lot of them have been said, we've curated a program of films that isn't just mainstream. We haven't just blocked out a big chunk with Bond. We've got a variety of the films from festivals, more indie loves, and that's keeping them alive because people are going to see these films. And I think it challenges the idea of traditional cinema distribution with two big blockbusters support them for the whole month. And then a couple of screenings of other films of international cinema. And I think the small cinemas that have survived have proven that, curating more diverse programs with other films and international cinema works people want to see these and that does require places like Cineworld and Picturehouse to look at their distribution model but also for them to stay open because Cineworld and Picturehouse are in a lot of places in the country that don't have Odeons that don't have view cinemas and so that's why we still need those cinemas like regardless because they reach people who that's their only cinema for miles perhaps so it's it's important that we keep 
talking about it and that they come back even while they're shut we don't let people forget that we're still in their corner fighting for that was very random but yes absolutely and I think um as the I think I second Jim's comment about saying you know I was very cautious to go back into the cinema but the the fact that this is a point where we're losing a whole model and you know something that we all talked about even early on and we continue to talk about wow wouldn't this experience be better in the cinema you know um just like we'll we'll talk about my opinions on this latest Sofia Coppola film but I thought it was quite ironic that I did go to a Sofia Coppola film as they first and also it still blew me away and, and I felt I actually had quite an emotional like moment, you know, to say this was like how it used to be all the time. And and so it's such an important thing for us to support in any capacity that we can. And um, of course that's, you know, hard for, uh, it's a decision that, that we all have to make individually, of course, but, um, but I do agree with everybody here that it's such an important part of the ecosystem of film. And so are the multiplexes as much as I would say, maybe perhaps the way Cineworld handled the and picture house handled the even the the early redundancies were was was quite terrible so i wasn't very excited about that you know because i mean the other thing i mean like other models are being tried a little bit here and there like i mean i think the big one that everybody had their eyes on was uh mulan which went straight to Disney Plus for this consider was it was it about was it thirty quid or twenty quid or some insane amount of money or something, which you need to pay on top of the Disney Plus subscription, right? And in a way, I'm not I, I'm not gonna cry too much over the fact that it seems to have died on its arse, quite frankly. Um, because I think that's a ridiculous amount of money. I just think it's absurd. And I think it's there is something to be said for what makes a lot of these films special is the fact you see them on the big screen and really to be honest with you i'm looking squarely at a lot of disney product there um you know i mean i've lapped up plenty of marvel cinematic universe films along with everybody else but there's nothing inherently wonderful about a lot of them i don't think and i think a lot of what people appreciate about those films is the idea of that collective experience that you get in a theater now there are plenty of aspects of it that have annoyed me in the past but there's a reason that most of the clips you see going around on social media for Avengers Endgame are not about how wonderful the acting was or how wonderful the cinematography was. It's not. It's like it's fan reactions to when like these ridiculous, these incredible moments of spoiler alert for anybody who's not seen it, like Captain America takes Thor's hammer, and you hear like crowds going absolutely mental. That's not really to do with the film itself. That's to do with that kind of that communal experience of watching the film with other people who are invested with it. And that goes all the way from these big blockbusters right down to, you know, me eager to see what your opinion was outside the film house when we went to see a Sofia Coppola film, which I suggested you go see. Like it, it goes across the whole spectrum of things. I think it's an experience that is worth keeping, but it needs people to, in this environment right now, it needs multiple parties to invest in it if they want it to still be there. And I think it is important that it is still there. Does it what not start with the distributors and, or I mean, the production companies themselves kind of making decisions that aren't, um, you know, I mean, they knew that like, I guess with Tenant was the example that they used. Oh, oh that, that failed. 
and maybe it failed because it wasn't as good of a film as everyone expected it to be like it wasn't you know but also they should have known that it wasn't I also question I also question whether that I mean I haven't seen it yet so I can't speak to the quality of the film but I also question whether that did fail. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's earned like about. I'm pretty sure at the time we we're recording, it's probably earned more money than Interstellar did. I mean, it's like I mean, I, I don't know how much money people expected that film to make anyway. I mean, undoubtedly, probably more than it has right now. But I mean, I think it's still done like nearly three hundred million dollars worldwide or something. I yeah, mean, in, it's in a global it, pandemic, that's yeah, not exactly. That bad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I actually don't think that's too bad, really. I think if I have any hope for kind of like the way that people look at box office figures after this is maybe that they start becoming less obsessed with like how much is earned in like the opening weekend. Because like Tenet came out, I think in the end, it was like mid-August or something. So it's been playing for a long time and it's still playing a lot of, play- a lot of places that are still open. So it's earned that money over a very long period, whereas previously everybody would be looking at pre-sales and opening weekend and previews and it's like, this is not a way to judge a film because like play, things can pick up or stay in on the basis of um, word of mouth. So, I mean, if there's anything that any way that people look at the big box office industry, that'd be my hope is maybe that things are judged over a slightly longer period, perhaps. Cause I think that's how a lot of films get lost. They don't do well on their open weekend and everybody just forgets about them. I and mean, I don't think that's particularly fair. There's a lot of blockbusters that have, fallen into that category i think birds of prey was one it did slightly below expectation it was like oh it's a box office bomb no it's not though is it i mean anyway anyway Hey, kiddo. Oh my gosh, do you look beautiful. Cliff, how's your mom's hip? Good, thanks. Good. He thinks you're my girlfriend. Bryce. Been busy? Yeah. Dean's traveling with clients all the time, and I'm just the buzzkill waiting to schedule things. Just, I'm so stuck. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. A woman's at her most beautiful between the ages of 35 and 39. Great, so I have many months left. So speaking of going to the cinema, um, Jim had challenged me. Uh, Like everyone who knows Cinetopia um, and myself knows that I don't, I don't have a soft spot for Sofia Coppola films and I potentially have a soft spot of disliking Sofia Coppola films. So what better way to go back to the cinema than to than to have um, to, to, to go for On the Rocks. And that's the next film that we are going to be uh, reviewing. So On the Rocks is Sofia Coppola's latest film and it's her own love letter to New York City. And I think perhaps the first film about New York City uh, that she she's made. Um, the story revolves around Laura, who's played by Rashida Jones, who's in her late thirties. And she's a writer and a woman who's kind of going through a, a writer's block and she starts to think um, that her husband Dean who's played by Marlon Wayans is cheating on her so she goes to her father um, Felix the uh, very 
personality plus Bill Murray um, to get some advice. And he kind of takes the opportunity to spend some time with his daughter, who he's kind of had a rocky relationship over the years because he's not, he, you know, he's a, he's a art dealer, but he's a lifelong cheater. So, um, you know, but to give his fatherly wisdom and, you know, what happens is kind of, you know, a, a, a I wouldn't, a, a charming tale of, you know, a father daughter bonding, uh, around this potential, um, cheating husband. Uh, so I will leave, uh, my thoughts, you know, like I, you know, I, I'll, I'll leave my thoughts immediately and ask everybody else what they think and then come back. In short, I quite enjoyed it. Um, I don't think it's something which is, but I mean, really, it's so light it might float away. I mean, that's really the way I'd I'd, I'd put it. Um, this film, for me, is entirely made by Bill Murray's performance. Um, it really does show that he can still carry what is, to me anyway, essentially amounts to a light comedy. It's it's an unfortunate one to have seen the cinema in a way because of all the films that we've spoken about today, I actually think it's probably the one that least needs to be seen in a cinema. Um, but to me, I really engaged with Bill Murray's performance. I think some of the, the lines he has given are really pretty amusing. I've got a lot of time for Rashida Jones. I know a lot of people don't necessarily and don't think she's necessarily that good, but I've also found her a bit quite engaging screen presence, again, in quite a kind of lighthearted way. Um, but, you know, I liked her work on The Office and Parks and Recreation and things like that. And there's a very, very good cameo with one of her um, co-stars from Parks and Recreation. Unfortunately, I forget her name, but she played John Ralphio's sister. And basically, it's a recurring cameo in this film. She does a very good job. So there's plenty to like about this film. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's really got quite as much substance to it. I wanted it to have a little bit more bite. And like Sophia's Coppola, Sophia Coppola's films that I've liked before, I think have been the ones that have got a little bit more bite. Now, it doesn't mean they're sharp. Like something like Loss in Translation is not sharp in that way, but I did feel like it had a lot more substance behind it. Um, even The Bling Ring, I I rather liked in, in that way. This one... Not so much. I'd like, I, I enjoyed it as a sort of light comedy um, with a little bit of a melancholic twinge to it at points, but I'd be lying if I said I got huge amounts out of it. It's not a film that's going to stay with me. And I think anybody who sees it, um, and I say this before, before I've heard Amanda's opinion, before I even know what Steph's actually is, um, I would say you're probably going to end up enjoying it, but I'd be surprised if it sticks in your mind after the week you saw it in. To be honest, yeah, um, I, I, I did quite enjoy it. Um, I'm mindful that um, kind of light comedies like that aren't really the genre that I'm most attracted to when it comes to planning a cinema trip or just watching a film in general. But um, yeah, I think like I agree with Jim. I think that there was an issue with I think there wasn't quite enough substance. I think it, you know, it. Um, I think that the cast did really well to kind of bring great life to I think where it was lacking a little bit in the script um but not to be too um harsh but I, I I quite admire kind of Sophia Coppola's um the way that she sort of plays with narrative conventions like like she did in Lost in Translation she sort of flipped the rom-com to a, a way we hadn't quite seen it before and kind of 
she kind of alludes to this um, essence of loneliness in her films in quite a natural, quite a naturalistic way that we don't often quite see. And I think that maybe because she explores it at ages where it's not commonly seen, which she, she focuses quite a lot on the middle age kind of middle, midlife crisis. And I think that um, whereas um, on the rocks is maybe kind of you could kind of link it in terms of theme to um, lost in translation. I think that. On the Rocks was meant to be a bit lighter, a bit more um, fun. It, it, I'm not saying it's not not engaging, but I think that um, it is something that possibly won't you won't retain it in your memory for for too much longer. But it, for a, a casual cinema trip, it is it is interesting, and I'm, I think um, the way that it kind of kind of floats in between um, comedic lenses, we kind of we we experience a bit of slapstick and. Um, I think the way that she sort of shows these things, these kind of hyperbolic um, co um, comedic skills, and then she kind of brings it down to a, a much more functional level. I think it is quite interesting how she manages to do that. And um, so I, again, I I did like the film, but I think that's all I could really say about it. Again, I am mi mindful that it's not the genre that I would select. So okay, well, I mean, I I think it is the genre that I like. Um, the actually the New York romantic comedy or the comedy and the social commentary about New York. And I was sitting through, walking through a really lovely fall day in Botanic Gardens with a um, curator with Cenotopia Amaya uh, the other, yesterday. And we were talking about all of these, like the traditional, you know, um, you know, what everything from Woody Allen, you know, to multiple types of New York kind of comedies that, that we kind of have a legacy. So, so this being Sofia Coppola's first, um, I was very keen and also very much miss New York and all of those streets and everything. I know exactly where everything is. So it was, it was quite it was nice to reminisce about, about that. And so for that reason, you know, had to and got keen to see. I also know that she had a little bit of an issue with uh, town gown relationships with the with the neighbors because of the way that the production tried to strong arm them their, themselves into certain streets and stuff. So I had quite an amusing follow of the actual production because uh, as New Yorkers, we're, we're constantly bombarded with, um, with a, film productions coming in and taking over and uh, there was there was quite a little bit of a scandal in the Soho area but I mean is this film innovative no uh, like as I found the boring I found the film kind of boring sometimes to be honest and I think that the story was really like loose and frivolous to be honest I like I didn't didn't sort of I mean we, I felt like we saw the storyline with like the second Bridget Jones film, you know, like, oh, he's cheating on me, maybe like, oh, no, it's just all in my head. And so I kind of expected more. And sadly, I actually maybe suspected more to dislike from it. It was just pretty blah. And I definitely felt that Bill Murray did carry it, but he carried it on his own kind of taking, like you know, particular like lines that weren't very fascinating or interesting you know and the you know like it's I personally found more like social commentary coming out of uh the intern you know uh like which is a rom-com of Brooklyn and it's got its issues too so you know the the sad thing is is that I do like to kind of I'm looking back at like as I mature and 
I've always had this kind of love-hate relationship with Sofia Coppola's films because I find that there's some aspects to them that are brilliant. They're 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 usually very aesthetically stunning. They're like they're framed exceptionally well. Um, the 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 soundtracks are always some of my favorites. I think I grew up like around the time like coming of age with like the Lost and translation soundtrack and some of my favorite, you know, some of my favorite artists are, are part of that. But I do feel like she lulls us into these stories that are very like, it seduces us with beautiful images and also, um, you know, like great framed shots. But ultimately what bothers me is that they're like stories of listless main characters and they're, and that listlessness gets annoying. and. To me, this Rashida Jones character didn't have, I didn't see the motivation. I didn't actually see that much chemistry. I felt like the chemistry between her and her husband were, was really strained. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, Bill Murray did carry it. That's that's for sure. He carried it, but he carried it on his own, in my opinion. No, I, I, I think that's a fair statement really i mean like even as somebody who's clearly enjoyed the film a bit more i i don't disagree with that um i'm also not sure anybody could really have inhabited that role besides bill murray i mean i think other people could have made it would have fallen a lot flatter the thing that i found interesting about the film because there's plenty of things in this film that look really great like i mean in particular there's a, there's a sequence now i you know I, we can talk about kind of like the, the film's depiction of New York uh, more, but from a purely from a purely aesthetic standpoint, right? And I'm a bit wary about considering things purely from an aesthetic standpoint. But if you do, there's one sequence in particular where Bill Murray and Rashida Jones are driving around in this classic car around the streets of New York. Like it, it looks really good, to be honest. Like it's a very it's a very nice film, right? Which sounds a bit of a ridiculous thing given the um, you know, the topic is like somebody wondering if they're being cheated on in their marriage. But it needed Bill Murray to make it engaging. Otherwise, otherwise, quite frankly, it did run the it did it, it did run the risk of falling into the trap that a lot of films do, which is this is the concern of like people who look fabulously wealthy as well. Um, you know, New Yorkers and they're like variously empty concerns but the tone that is generated by bill murray's presence i think is what makes it uh for me anyway an enjoyable film i think for it to linger longer along the lines of some of coppola's other films which i've a number of which i've liked a great deal it needed something a bit more bite it needed to it needed to say something like i don't really know that like this film didn't really say anything uh, apart from, hey, look, you remember, the, hey, look, Bill Murray was in that film. He was good. Remember him? Here he is. He's being funny. Um, you know, so is it worth seeing? Maybe. Maybe. If you already have it, like, it's going to Apple TV Plus. If you already have an Apple TV Plus subscription, sure, check it out. I mean, I think it's only like an hour and a half or something. Um, I enjoyed it, but. I really wanted more out of it. I wanted a bit more bite or it to say something more or like the film gets very close to actually kind of engaging with something a little bit deeper when 
Bill Murray, who has not been the best father to Rashida Jones, basically op- starts to open up about the woman that he left Rashida Jones's mother for. And there's this moment where basically he realizes that he has outlived her, despite the fact that she was much younger than he was. He is, rather. And it's that it's the first moment where there's a hint to something deeper in terms of like what you look for from relationships and what they mean and how you interact with the people around you based upon them. But it doesn't really go anywhere with it. It lasts a few minutes and then it's gone as quickly as it appeared. And then we're back to kind of like borderline slapstick stuff around following the husband. And again, I found it amusing enough, but it's more just there were those little hints to something more. And I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think that would have been the more interesting film. Would it have been less rooted in Bill Murray being Bill Murray? Probably. And I think it would be a slightly different type of film. So it's maybe not fair for me to criticize it. But at the same time, that is what I've got out of some of Sofia Coppola's other films. And I think that would have been the more interesting one. And the ingredients were there for that to happen. But it just didn't. I wonder when, kind of in reflection to it, I wonder if had the balance sort of in the film changed up it almost seemed like Bill Murray's character was so developed that perhaps he should have been the protagonist all along I feel like Rashida Jones's character is lacking in development greatly but I I know why and it was shot that way I think I think the you know the the elements of um the social themes the the elements of like misogyny lacing through that um, are quite effective but I think you know they they lose they have their limitations when you you, you don't develop the character um, um completely and I think but I think with a lot of light comedies there's not always a, a real need to, to do that but I think with this one um it needed a little bit more um substance to in terms of the characterization yeah but I mean I would argue like and I know that's just just a long stream of me reflecting on Sofia Coppola films is that substance is very like is there's not that much substance in a lot of the films and um she gets away with this again like i said seduction of of really beautiful imagery and like framing and 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 all these other things that kind of like you love about watching a film so yeah of course i love watching beautiful images and beautiful fashion and she's you know she has that background personally but um, this film really like I've seen a lot of romantic comedies or comedies or slapstick comedies around New York and and I've also seen really gritty films and I think we'll be talking about a film about New York like coming up and that actually have a pulse of like what it is to be and the only thing that actually it just annoyed me like I do remember like women you know, with their children, like with their strollers running around like the city and like Park Slope and how annoying they were. And like, that was basically like emulated. And I think, I think they've said that this kind of is because of the Bill Murray aspect that like, this is kind of the, you know, sequel of like the, the, I, I wouldn't call it sequel, but you know, like the fact that she's now looking at, you know, Lost in Translation was this kind of semi-autobiographical film where she didn't know what to do with her life in, you know, a fancy hotel and two fancy people like met because the other was different. And I've actually the feeling there's some honest consideration of, 
you know, con concern of the other and the way that Japanese culture is like represented. And those are the things that I find actually kind of not, not, I, I wouldn't say offensive, but yes, sort of offensive about the films and some reasons why I don't like it, but this one's not offensive at all. It's just not, it's not great. And it also just represents kind of a culture and a class of New Yorkers who aren't really, you know, aren't much fun anyway. <laughs> If you've lived there, so I mean, if I'm being even even though I, by and large, you know, in the moment, I I enjoyed the film. If I was being cynical, I would say it's exactly the sort of thing I expect to be produced for Apple TV Plus. Um, yeah, there's something there's something about it. There's a there's a there's a but lack I, of difficulty, Jim, I think, yeah, with but, it. But Jim, I think when we had this discussion and fight about uh, the souvenir, where I was particularly okay with that film, and you know, I have a, I love the Real Housewives of New York, and I love what Stillman films from the '90s about, like, you know, wealthy, wealthy uh, New Yorkers. So I, I don't mind a conversation, a stylized portrait of privilege, and you know, as as long as there's commentary that actually makes me feel like we're kind of like aware of this, even like if you look at the show girls and stuff like that, there's some, there's these elements of this kind of bourgeois sort of society in New York and, and what that means to be a privileged person. Um, there's no, like, there's no self self reflection here, you know, at all. True. Not that I want to relitigate the souvenir, right? Because I think that would probably be like the third or fourth time we've done it, right? But what I would say is the souvenir tries to engage with that. And then, in my opinion, is extremely lacking. The reason this, I think, maybe feels a bit bland, for want of a better word, is it basically makes no attempt to interrogate that. Because um, that's not the concern of the film. The concern is the relationships between these people, right? And this just happens to be the world they inhabit so it's not like they, so it's not as if they try to address it and then fall on their arse doing it which is personally in my opinion what happened with the souvenir your mileage may vary right but that's the thing about this it, it feels like one of these it feels like one of these comedies from like the late noughties the early part of this decade that was it, it feels like somebody's taken like the sort of film that would be directed by like a a David Wayne or a Judd Apatow or like, you, you know, something like that. And they've taken that, but it's been tweaked and then filmed by Sofia Coppola. That's how it feels to me. And it's just, it's more, I have this feeling of wanting to get more out of it because her name is attached to it. Now, maybe that's unfair, right? Because maybe that's, again, that's me taking my own expectations to it. But I think that is what I want. Why I wanted a bit more bite out of it. Now, that's not to say what the film does is, in my opinion, well done, and in particular what Bill Murray does is extremely well done. I just don't think it's that memorable. Well, I agree. I don't think it's that memorable I, as well. And you know, perhaps expected more and more to be, you know, more to dislike. But it's just, you know, it is what it is. And it's not, uh, well, it is going to be available on Apple Plus, as you mentioned. Is that what it's called? Apple TV Plus? There's yep. always a plus. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, if you haven't caught it in the theater, um, which we all sort of said, it's, it, maybe it's not necessary to see it in the theater and maybe catch it online.
presence graces the air, and soon everyone will see. Hi, Umod. Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. It's how he guides me. My little savior. Hey, I thought that was you. What are you up to? I'm a private carer. You're still nursing? What? Well, they know what happened. All the good girls go to hell. All right, so the next film we're going to review is St. Maud, uh, directed by Rose Glass. Uh, and Elle, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? So St. Maud is Rose Glass's debut feature, and it's this kind of biblical horror nightmare. Morphid Clark is a palliative care nurse and she's recently become a kind of religious convert and she believes it's kind of her place in the world to help save people and kind of help them meet God but it's done in a very sinister manner because she's working with kind of patients who are on the edge of death and it's her it becomes this warped obsession um She's, I mean, Maud's, she's a very, she's a very good nurse. She seems very caring, but everything seems quite sinister. And she appears to start having these kind of, almost kind of like orgasmic fits when kind of, when she's almost feeling like she's reaching out to God or being shared this message. And it just starts to become more and more creepy as it verges on. She's got this kind of um, relation, uh, like, connection to William Blake's poetry the idea that I mean he was renowned for kind of talking about the soul and falling from grace and she's very this all this religious kind of symbology um creeps up a lot in the film and she's kind of we're kind of confronted by her old care workers wondering where she disappeared from so we know that there's something in her backstory um, but it's one of those films where you know it's going to be creepy, you know it's going to be horrible, but it's incredibly tactile. Um, I think you guys would agree with me. It's a lot of the imagery is kind of there's lots of like nails. There's there's a cockroach that was apparently trained for this film. Um, so watching kind of an so did you say they yeah. trained a cockroach? They trained a cockroach for the film. The cockroach that kind of comes into the frame a lot and kind of mirrors when she's got she's kind of having these warped moment oh, okay i didn't yeah i mean yeah okay that's that, that's a that's level of craft i hadn't <laughs> i mean don't worry, i like the film as well become banned but that's a level of craft like training cockroaches that i'd not really picked up on quite frankly <laughs> it's she's i mean so rose glass is an nfts grad as well which is really interesting being at the school kind of seeing how her director directing styles kind of come out from working on she's worked on sorry, three horror shorts to have then kind of created this debut so you can see where all this idea all the research she's done has kind of gone into this film um but yeah like the symbology is kind of creeps in as it goes along and it's being set in like scarborough as well um it's this really kind of soggy horrible kind of place um down by the coast as well everything feels a lot more sinister um but i really like i'm not a big horror fan i'm pretty much a scaredy cat 
so this was um this was actually really enjoyable if that doesn't sound too like kind of sadistic to enjoy a horror that's quite gruesome yeah no i'd um i'd second that i was really pretty impressed with this film um I'm not much of a, a horror person myself either. Uh, I mean, it's not really my specialty. Uh, I'm not. It's not. Sorry, it's, it's not a, a genre I gravitate towards. But it's it's not really to me a typical horror film. To be honest, it is far more what I would think of as a psychological thriller. But at this point, it's really you know it's crossing several genres. I think what is really effective about it though is the way it creates the atmosphere that the film then inhabits and then really how it it toes the line very well between devotion and delusion basically um and particular was the film goes on you start to see that line blurring a lot more in terms of uh, the performance but really the way that certain sequences are filmed really brings that home and i i appreciated that a huge amount it also made me scared at points. I mean, like I was watching this at home. I was watching it on a screener. And basically my wife had several occasions wondered what the hell was going on because I was sitting with these headphones that I'm on using right now. And I would every so often I just go, oh God, right? <laughs> just at these random bits, right? So it clearly has the, it clearly has the effect that it's actually um, intending to. I think what you've said there, Elle, about being tactile is extremely, extremely on point. Um, you know, and... the. The, the nail segment which is in the trailer like i mean that's a kind of a key point that does make you actively wince um so no i i'm really really very impressed with it i think also the story itself holds together um you know i mean it is far more film about creating atmosphere and from what i can see that's where a lot of the effort has gone to but it does have a story about kind of the way people react to trauma and what they look to find solace in and how that can go awry i think that there's there's a very solid set of ideas below it as well and i think that's part of what actually makes it so scary at points steph what did you make of the film oh i loved it i i think it's probably one of the best films i've seen this year actually and for a directorial debut it was um it was very impressive i i remember watching it and i was thinking the first thing that i thought of straight away um when it was kind of unraveling the plot like the plot became much more clear of what was going on is it was sort of like challenging the horror conventions that we've had from the 70s and things and we especially with religious horror when we see things about kind of this kind of fear mongering about people that are you know don't have have quite a secular life, lifestyle and kind of aren't um within the church um she's kind of taken this other um point of view of someone that's been far too immersed within um some um with, within uh, theology and it kind of I think it's one of the best pieces of the kind of delusions of grandeur and um, religious psychosis in, into film. And I think that you do see, I remember um, the, one of the scenes when um, she's sort of, um, Maud is sort of standing at the window and she's having a kind of faint conversation with everything around her. And it's, it's sort of that delicacy that even though it shows the, the real horror of kind of becoming quite absorbed into religion also really humanizes the the problems of you know mental illness in film and I don't think we see that enough I think it's it's done its research in that sense it's not kind of went down the sensationalist realm that it could have done with its kind of the background and horror but um yeah I think that the narrative um for that debut feature and for the pacing as well because it is quite a short film um you know you get quite sucked into it and then it the end, well, the end, 
the ending itself kind of um, floors you. So it's, um, I would say, all in all, it was definitely something that has impressed me this year. Yeah, I think I think the fact it's a debut feature actually is quite remarkable as well. I, and I think th- th- what you've alluded to there, Steph, the length. I actually think that adds a little bit to the intensity of the film because a lot of thing a lot of things happen here in terms of the relationship with um, you know the relationship with the pa- the American patient that she's taking care of, uh, her interactions with former colleagues and you know strangers in bars and things like that. A lot of stuff happens here. There are a lot of interrupted climaxes. I'm going to put it because a lot, a lot of the stuff to do with like kind of the, you know, her the way that she's connecting with the supposedly anyway, connecting with the divine, the devotional aspects. There's quite a strong sexual element to it, really, in a lot of the way that it's it's expressed. But and all of this is packed into. I think it's less than an hour and a half, isn't it? I think it's like 80, 86 minutes or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So. It's a case that there's not there's not there's not an ounce of fat on this story. I mean, it, it is very tightly scripted and plotted, and that lends it that intensity which I think the story needs. So I think that the whole thing has come together really, really extremely well. I think, um, and the fact that that the fact that it's got that tightness to it and kind of conciseness as a debut feature, I actually think is quite incredible because that is the sort of thing, especially when you're kind of double dipping on writing director this is the sort of thing where you can easily come out with something that's a little bit flabby because somebody's trying to throw all their ideas at the wall and see what sticks um and don't be wrong you get a lot of interesting films that way but i think this doesn't feel like a debut feature to me there's a lot of experience behind it and also like picking up on the whole kind of like kind of divinity and devotion it and mental like health it doesn't feel unkind a lot of horror films hinge upon like mental illness or mental health as being kind of like the catalyst and the main reason almost kind of blamed for someone's kind of collapsing or having a meltdown and actually this kind of you very much see how religion can kind of carry someone who's clearly mentally suffering as we know there's kind of past trauma but it doesn't really blame her for her suffering we kind of see how religion warps around people and how she gets really surprised when people kind of question her and her kind of devotion and religion. And you can, it really helps you see both perspectives. It makes you understand how people can question religious devotion, but also to her, it's what she believes and it's where she feels loved. It where she feels safe and trusted. And that's a very particular balance to capture as a new director without completely fudging it. Yeah. And I think that that's what struck me about it when I'm, talking about kind of like that communicating that balance between devotion delusion right because there are there are several sequences in this film and i think the one that makes it into the trailer is when she's kind of like levitating in the middle of her room where it's very clearly it's very clearly not happening right it is a fantastical sequence but the thing that's interesting about it is it's very clearly communicating what she is experiencing, right? And it's not done in this sort of like um, supernatural exorcist type way or anything like that. It's presented as how she is experiencing her devotion. And in particular, and I don't want to give too much, like too much away here because I think you really need to experience it to get the full impact of what I'm talking about here. But the, the place for me where that really comes home is right at the end of the film. And right at the end of the film, there's basically a, a cut which 
stayed with me for a very long time after that film finished. And it brutally, just brutally juxtaposes those two things against one another. Whereas previously, it has been woven, it's woven in by Rose Glass, like really quite skillfully and quite well. But right at the end, it kind of gets to the heart of it and just there's a jump cut and honest to god i think it's what the whole film is leading up to and it is horrific it is absolutely horrific it made me jump out of my skin quite frankly um to go back onto what el was saying i think that a lot of horror films especially you know it's difficult to talk about subjects like mental health or um, psychological problems without being exploitative and i think that um she really did did well here it sort of resonated with me that um kind of when Logan Kerrigan was doing kind of a um the, the film Clean Shaven and he um kind of following a mentally disturbed man, but it focuses on all the elements that he experiences through his life, and it, you kind of see everything um through his point of view, and that kind of clicked with Saint Maud as well. It wasn't a lot of time when we have these horror films talking about people that are experiencing delusions and things. You have kind of this sort of parade of people and how other perspectives kind of distort that but we're kind of seeing the whole um mod reality through herself and i think in a way it kind of it sheds light on um a lot of the problems we have in mainstream media and the way that we um sort of show these problems so i think that um for an hour and 20 minutes it would have been much easier for her to be much more sensationalist and, and get kind of cheap scares and it's, it's quite impressive that she, she didn't she did something that was um much more meaningful, I think. Wonderful. So St. Maud is screening at the Film House in Edinburgh and, and um, for the rest of this week and is, will be in theatres across the UK. So be sure to check it out. thought on what kind of play we want to write. Remember, if you put in nothing, it'll be nothing. Like your career? Remember this face? She was one of Spotlight Magazine's 30 under 30 playwrights to watch. We watched, but where'd she go? How are you? Archie tells me you're teaching. How's somebody who ain't had no real hit gonna tell me how to write a play? She ain't no Tyler Perry. I did win a 30 under 30 award. Yes, it was quite a couple of years ago. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all white play? This some bullshit. It rang a little inauthentic. I asked myself, did a black person really write this? This some fucking bullshit, bullshit. Think about me doing hip hop. Doing what to it? I want to make a mixtape about the 40-year-old woman's point of view. So the next film we're going to review is The 40-Year-Old Version. Um, and it's another film about New York, uh, shot all in black and white. And uh, Stephanie, please tell us a little bit about that film. Um, so it's a, a, de- a debut um, feature from Rada Black. And it, it, it's interesting because it's one of those things where you know, she's in the film. She's also written the film and directed it. It's um, um, for um, for anyone that's you know, seen um, Desiree Akbam's um, inappropriate behaviour or um, Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman. It kind of has this encompassing um underground feel to it. Um, and it's um, it's pretty. It's pr- it's a really interesting um feature actually. It's about a 
a woman who is a struggling um, dramaturge and she's and she can't get any she's not really selling the plays that she was 10 years ago and she um she has to kind of write um in accordance to what um the white um white male producers want her to and how they want to encapsulate um their opinions about or their um their views on um racial issues and things so it's it's all about um kind of her having to document the realities of her life into what sort of these kind of rich white producers want to want to claim as an authentic experience as a as someone of a person of color so it's it's already kind of it becomes um, it kind of almost kind of goes back to Dunyu um, right from the the, the um, similarities and the um, the kind of reference points are there. But I it's also about kind of adapting your your voice into kind of um, increased like mediaization and, and digitalization. I suppose um, um, well, one thing that's always um, kind of lacking funding is is the theatre, and because there's not as many new kind of voices of people people of color or minorities of, of any description um it's always going to be kind of held a little bit back from the way that the film and television world is kind of um evolving so it's talking a little bit about that and so this um this uh woman who can't get any um is struggling to um be a playwright decides to kind of shine her voice through um hip-hop and um rap so that's um so she kind of um she uh Sorry, she um, meets with um, this uh, this guy who um, kind of does um, all the recording and makes all these um, beat tracks for her to um, to sing um, to, to record on. And she she um, she kind of goes to his um, um, his um, house and uh, records there. But I, I think from w- what develops there is it, it's really interesting because you kind of see the. The, the people, the people in her life that want her to kind of keep her on this linear track, keep her um, for something that she has been successful for in the past, but she no longer kind of fits into that world anymore, and she kind of branches off into um, to this new kind of um, world that's welcomed her um, almost instantly. So it is a really, um, really good film, and I think if um, I would recommend it to everyone that's um, got Netflix as a streaming platform, it's um, probably one of the best things that's been out this year on it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you completely. I loved this film. I have some experience with knowing about theater because I produced a online series around people who work in Broadway. And I think the commentary about the theater scene in New York is exceptional and so true because it becomes this kind of, uh, it's a very closed society. It's a very small society. And it's also one that's very funded on, on, you know the type of person who's been who's been depicted and and you know in the in the project and the kind of wants and needs of um you know of of that audience and and like what they what they kind of want to see and how they want to feel about themselves um with that so i think the social commentary on that was but also the year and just everything about this film was so much fun I really did I really really enjoyed it I thought it was really spot on it was really amazing that it's a debut feature it's incredible and to say something that really felt raw and really New York and also really important to to discuss compared to what we were just discussing about you know on the rocks which was kind of a loose you know like not not very 
not very strong in its social commentary, I think this was was a far standout to to the fil- the two films of sure, for sure. Yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I um so I I spotted this when it was because it was part of the Sundance lineup, and I desperately tried to get a screener for it at the time uh, and failed miserably. So I'm I'm very glad to have have seen it now, and it really is very good. Um. I think the fact that Radablank is writing it, directing it, and starring in it is, you know, quite the quite the accomplishment because there's a lot again, there's a lot un, very much unlike the Sofia Coppola film. There's a lot going on in this film, right? There's a lot going on about um her experience of, you know, being predicted for great things and, you know, sure she's she's doing okay, but you know, as she ages, really, then what people's perception of that is. And the film opens with that straight away. She's teaching a class and, you know, the kids that she's teaching kind of like go for, well, what have you done recently? Like, what have you actually done? You can't tell me to, you know, how to write something. So there's that going on. There's the, as you say, the theatre scene in New York and kind of the interaction between the stories people want to tell and the stories that people want, the people with, you know, the purse strings want to fund is the other part of it. And there's so many bits of this that are just really interesting. I think the other thing that's probably worth noting about this film is it's funny. I mean, there are multiple points in this where like it's really, really funny. You know, there's lots of things about, you know, like so at one point, Rada Blank, she wants a she wants a black director for the production. That's very important to her. She doesn't get one. And part of the justification for her ending up with this uh, white woman is, oh, her all-female production of 12 Angry Men was fantastic. And there's all these little kind of like little throwaway things uh, put in, which are like really, really amusing. I think the the lyrics for the uh, the rap segments where she's coming up with her, her lyrics, which are all very much focused upon her aging as a woman are fantastic right and i think i think she actually performs it like really well as well because if to describe this you could worry that it comes out maybe being a little bit like cringe comedy it's not it's actually just legit funny right in terms of like what she the the material she's delivering not the way she's delivering it she's actually doing it really pretty effectively i really like the look of the film as well um i think i believe it was shot on 35 millimeter so it has that it, it has a it has quite an authentic look to it in terms of it being like a chronicle of someone's you know days so it has a look which goes with the the material i think radablank is an extremely engaging screen presence i think she's she's absolutely superb in this which is just as well because we're pretty much with her for the entire film um i've got to be honest i find it very hard to pick fault with this i mean not that i'd say that in the sense i try to pick fault with films but it's just it's it's a very well realized story like you know the the this idea of the the production the film which she writes and then goes into production and how she feels about changes that she needs to make to it and then the way that builds towards the end there's a very clear story in there right but then the other segments as i say kind of like the segments of her rapping the way she interacts with this kind of like elderly white male producer of the show that she eventually gets to put on the way she's interacting with the younger um people that she's teaching at the start of the film and just all those interactions are you know in and around the orbit of that story and they all say something they all kind of like bring a certain amount of humor but also as we've said didn't happen in the previous film it says something there's something to say there um 
I really liked it. I thought it was really good. It's well worth is well worth checking out, and I think it's an extremely effective film. I'll be very interested to see what um, Rada Blank does after this because it feels like a very personal story, right? And I think that's come, becomes clear from the fact that she's essentially doing just about all of it. Um, so I'd be very interested to see what she goes on to after this. But certainly on the basis of this, is it's really interesting and really funny as well i mean i find myself really involved with the story but also kind of like you know laughing out loud a couple of times quite frankly yeah i love oh sorry go ahead i just because i love the look of the film and it was something that i kind of caught on to immediately i i think obviously what um jim is saying because it's been shot on 35 millimeter it does have this kind of underground effect that, you know, your mind always kind of goes back to the feel of like um, when you watch a documentary or a docudrama. So you, um, already you're sort of immersed in the, into the truth of the, the film itself. I think that you can definitely trace the influences from the watermelon woman directly into this film. And um, from the start, when you kind of have um, kind of um, little clips of people talking about what it means to be 40, what, what they can imagine it is and what it was like for them. So you, you're you already kind of gathering the kind of the kind of scene that um, Cheryl kind of made when she was um, making the watermelon moon back in the, in the 90s. So it's it's nice to see that um, it's kind of followed along that path because I, I think much like um, Cheryl Donny, it it's, has been built on a lot of um, kind of self-reflective metaphors about her own life and you, you can see that um, and the authenticity and through the um, the direction that it's taken. Um, I I think that it, it is one of those films that even though th there is so many different things to kind of unpack with it when you have, um, you know, the the um, the problem with aging, the, the um, race um, the, the conflicts of race within the theatre and, and the writing world. But I, I also think it's it's such just a nice, uh, rounded, and really good existential film about the struggle, the struggles of being in the creative industry of any part of it. So I think, um, holistically, um, right now it, it does resonate um, quite far into to many different um, levels of what I think that what we're experiencing a lot right now um, globally. So, yeah. Absolutely, I agree a hundred percent. And like that's one of the things I was going to say is that um, apart from you know, my enjoyment of films that talk about the daily life of New Yorkers who are struggling or, you know, I, I just that that in of itself resonated with me or the understanding of the theater scene. And like we said, but it did remind me like it didn't it, it brought me back to the film that we we talked about earlier a couple of years ago. Can you ever forgive me? Which, again, is also about a creative person struggling within an industry particularly that was in the 90s as well but you know it's um there there's there's honesty and authenticity there and like you said and that's just something that is pleasantly humorous when you as a creative struggle through through that living in a big city of any city but in particularly new york and the things that she has to face in order to you know, and to survive in that city, but also to be a creative and an artist. And this whole conversation about gentrification, which is just every much part of every, every neighborhood in, in uh, New York, for sure. These, these are things that she honestly and authentically and humorously um, portrayed that I can't wait to watch it again, for all of those reasons you mentioned, the way it looks, the way the, 
the the enjoyment of it and also just kind of like the self-reflection of like we said the theater scene like there's jokes about Hamilton and all and it, like in the heights is very, very much close to where that's you know related to so there's all this kind of very like very um it's not inside information but if you're if you're familiar with that scene it's it's very spot on and super intelligent and just something that i can't recommend more unlike again you know in comparison to the other one it just didn't it just fell so flat and the there was no str the struggle of having writer's block in a soho flat you know compared to this story is just it's it's just miles away no, I, no, it's a good film. It's very good. I, I like the way it pokes at little conventions as well. Like I think a, a standout segment for me is when so there's a, again a recurring kind of interaction with a, a homeless guy on the street, yeah, and right at the end of the film, like, I absolutely loved it. It's just sort of like she's having this moment where you know she's a way to head off to the the production of the play. This is kind of towards the end. And it's just this wonderful moment. Where it's like, oh right, this is the point where I give you some wisdom, isn't it? You know, it's just, so it's even just with these little interactions. So it's always just poking a bit of fun at these kind of like ridiculous conventions and what we expect of certain types of characters and things. And it does it as you say in an extremely intelligent way, in an extremely funny way, and a way that really feels really feels genuine. And I think that's part of what makes it so enjoyable. And even as Stephanie mentioned, there's homages or, or whatnot to to previous films or, you know, sort of like the tradition of this kind of stuff, you know, that chorus of people who come throughout the film to comment, you know, I mean, even as we were talking about, like, you know, when Harry met Sally or, you know, these kinds of original films, there is this kind of homage to that, that sort of chorus of of characters around you but it's done in such a unique way and it's done in its own way and that's when you can take you can take um pride and respect of what came before you in a legacy of films but then also make it so authentic and individual and this is such a it's probably one of my favorite debut films this year, at least. So it's on Netflix um, and we highly recommend all three of us. So please check it out. So the London Film Festival was online this year and also um, was showing across theaters across the UK. Uh, both Jim and Elle were um, a part of the industry or watch the what was was part of the press screenings uh, can you tell me a little bit about how that uh, how the festival went this year um well i'm going to let l do most of the talking here because we're, we're about to talk about like you know some of our highlights of london film festival but i'm kind of cheating here because i've actually only watched one film at london film festival most of it's actually stuff um I watched online as part of Toronto, which happened to be screening at London as well. But it's been kind of the main the main film event going on in Britain for the past, you know, couple of weeks or something. Um, so, I mean, saw several films. I think Elle has seen a lot more than I have because as part of her course, she's required to watch some insane amount of films. Um, so I think in total the program, I think I've seen about maybe eight or nine of the films. Uh, and we're going to talk about one of the ones which was a highlight for me, which was Mogul Mowgli, but... Elle, what else have you seen that you would maybe highlight? So I've seen a grand total of 30 films um, for the festival, which is, yeah, been knackering. Um, and it's it's been odd having, this is the one of the first 
film festivals that's gone ahead in a mostly virtual but still a bit of a hybrid edition so that's meant press screenings three or four a day with 10 minutes between links so it's definitely been an interesting process I don't think it will ever replace an in-person festival but I think they've done a remarkable job and it's definitely brought out some great discussions about accessibility um but in terms of my top films um so once again, one of them is, uh, two of them are cheating. So Andina and Shirley, I saw at Berlin, but I, seeing them on second watch, loved them as much, if not more. Um, Relic, which is Natalie Jones's uh, date, another debut horror, um, which is amazing. Um, there was another round, uh, Thomas Vinterberg, which I know was a big hit featuring Mads Mikkelsen and is a great discussion on kind of Danish drinking culture. Uh, the Disciple, um, uh, Chatiana's uh, new film which is about kind of Indian music and legacy um, Wildfire uh, Kathy Brady's I think another debut as well I actually I spoke to the the director Wildfire Kathy Brady we're going to run it um, later in the show uh, a chat about that film I, I, I'll i be interested to see the rece- the wider reception of that when that comes out because I think that's a really I think that was a really really good film that um, it's kind of set on the Irish border follows two sisters and there's a lot of brexit backdrop i it's very interesting to me how it compares um that sort of like the personal trauma of the sisters with the kind of the national scale trauma and how they all all wind together so that was pretty that that was really good i also liked another round you know that that you mentioned there that was pretty excellent i think yeah wild, wildfire emotionally battered me more than I was expecting and I think you're right I can't wait to see it having a wider public release and seeing everyone's feelings on it because it's a very it's a very personal and political film and she does a remarkable job of kind of bringing the two in together like if you bring in the troubles in Ireland from the past and the current issues of Brexit it's extraordinary what she does with it um there was also uh, Harry McQueen's Supernova which is about um two gay men dealing with um early onset dementia and I spoke yeah with Harry McQueen about it and it's it's an astounding film in terms of its discussion about dementia and how it can impact people yet in their 60s and that what do you do next how do you deal with this hang how do you talk to your friends like stigmatizations around it it's once again a lot of these films in the festival are very tight 89 minutes um which perhaps says something about people's kind of attention span with films we're going back to a typical kind of an hour hour and a half kind of films um but the general program for London has yeah as Jim has said there's been some films from Toronto we've had a few Cannes films we've had a Sundance film and a few premieres and it's been a strong selection I mean London's a pretty strong selection anyway because I think it cultivates the best of world cinema, celebrates British cinema and gives new directors a wonderful stepping stone into the industry. But this year, especially with 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 a pandemic on to have cultivated such and curated such an interesting and very diverse set of films, I think has been outstanding. Yeah, first look at some interesting ones as well. Like, I'm not like I'm not going to go into depth on a lot of them because I'm hoping that we can maybe do them on the show at some point. Because another round at the moment, at the moment, it's meant to be coming out November twenty seventh. Um, and then I think the the one that's probably most notable 
his Nomadland, which I think is scheduled for a release yeah. in January here. Now that's that's making a lot of like basically it seems to have made waves at just about every festival it's popped up at. I saw it as part of Toronto and with good reason. I think it's an excellent, excellent film. Um, so we'll hopefully talk about that more in the future. Yeah, we'll ask you where you're from. Now, where are you from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. Britons are on board, and I love a cup of tea in that. But where my jeans are from, people don't really MC in that. Now, everybody, everywhere, want their country back. If you want me back to where I'm from, the property, I'm at. No man's land yet, between trenches, no thing grows there. But it's fertilized by the brown bodies that fall for Britain in the water when I spit a puppy grows there. I find my own place in this business of Britishness. So stop trying to find a box for us. Um, I think one that we're probably going to talk about in more detail now, though, is one that me and Elle have both seen, and the only one that I saw genuinely as part of the London programme as opposed to somewhere else, is uh, Mogul Mowgli, which is the, I think it's a feature narrative debut from Basim Tarek. He's done he's done shorts, he's done the documentary feature before, I think this is his first narrative feature, written by him and Riz Ahmed, who plays the lead. Um and basically what it, it opens on Riz Ackman just playing Zed, who is a rapper who's just about to embark upon his first world tour. He's based in the USA and he's encouraged by his girlfriend to go see his family in London, Wembley, to be specific, before he embarks on this tour, basically kind of reconnect with them because um, she feels he's got a bit of drift from them. So basically, he goes back, he catches up with his family, but while he's there, he's struck down by illness. And then there's all this really quite interesting stuff about how you express culture, how you express heritage, um, woven throughout the film, as he now deals with this illness, trying to kind of you know recover in time to embark upon this tour, which is basically his his big his big opportunity to really become... Uh, incredibly successful. So, Al, I'll let you kind of lead the way on this a little bit, just with what your first impressions were of the film. It was pretty much the first thing I saw at London. Um, so, what did you make of it? I mean, I I can't say I loved it as much as everyone from the outset. I think it needed time to sit with me and to think about it. And looking back, and yeah, what more I, I was really impressed with the way it it way it looks at yeah kind of like cultural identity and heritage and how you deal with like having something like an autoimmune illness and I mean he's got so, so much like passion and intention to kind of get back on the road get his career he can see it right there he's a young guy he didn't think his life was going to be affected by this so much and he's so determined and it's quite painful to watch because you can see him kind of grasping at wanting to his success is so close and this thing is suddenly in his way but he's also dealing with being back with kind of his parents again and like looking at so his parents are kind of traditional Pakistani and their perceptions of they're not so keen about like any of the medicines in the hospital or like the proposed trials for this autoimmunity and he's caught between 
wanting to get better but wanting to listen to his parents and it's a great commentary on him talking like connecting back with his father and almost kind of standing up and saying what he wants as opposed to what they're trying to help him get through and um I think he is I think Riz Ahmed's uh, performance is the thing that stands out most entirely I think that's what really struck me most I think the script was a little bit loose at times I did find it slow it's a slow paced film hospitals are slow paced paced places um it's 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 very emotional but it's very powerful as well and I love the way that it cuts back between shots of him on stage with the audience and you really understand that love as a musician like you do this not just because you want to be successful but because of the way that your fans and audience react to your music and it puts a different light on the rap scene as well in the UK and in the US it doesn't just look at this kind of whole successful money side of it it looks at the bit of behind the scenes which people don't get to see all the time um so I think yeah Tarek's features definitely warmed on me as it's as I've sat and had time to think about it it's interesting the some of the stuff you speak about there especially in the context of it having like you having warmed up to it's like is it they're they're completely different things to what I enjoyed about it right and I would just not say I disagree with any of those things I think everything you say is spot on right but the thing that struck me about it, and again, I'd, I was fortunate enough to talk to Basim Tarek about this film, right? And the thing that struck me about it is the way that there are a lot of cultural references in here which are not signposted. And I think the film still works as a result of it. And I said to him when I was talking about it, look, I've come out of this film learning things, right? Because one of the recurring motifs in this film, right? Because there's basically, to my mind, there's three strands going through this, right? There's reality where he's dealing with the illness. There are flashbacks that hark back to the his concerts where he's performing his material in front of an audience. And then there are also these kind of insertions of hallucinations, maybe is the way you would put, would put them, or you know what's going on in his head. And a recurring motif in that is this personification of Toba Tech Singh. Now, basically what that is, is it's a... Well, it's various things, and this is where it starts to become quite dense to unpack. But where the name comes from is a city in uh, Pakistan, which is named after a Sikh religious figure, Tek Singh. And during the 1947 partition of India, when Britain was being all British in the area, basically, um, you ended up with this this weird thing where ending up in Pakistan there was this city named after a Sikh religious figure and it kind of somebody I forget the name of the author now to my discredit has written a short story which is called Tobitek Singh and is set around this idea of a man who has this very difficult identity he then needs to reconcile because basically his identity is attached to somewhere where he can no longer be um, because it was placed in Pakistan he is Sikh and he now cannot return to his homeland. So basically there's all these ideas of identity and how you express it wrapped up in the film. And very early on, there's a very key example of this where he's out the back um, of a mosque and basically he offered, he gets talking to this fan of his that recognizes him, he offers him a split and basically he's then castigated for doing it with his left hand. And this all then becomes a very big symbolic moment because they get into a fight and that's the point at which he then becomes aware of his diagnosis. So it's very interesting the way it deals with 
everybody within a community's ideas around how to express your membership of that community or your heritage or culture is different. And there's not agreement on it and people can get very annoyed about how you do it. And it even comes up later in the film when he is having another one of these these moments where it's very obviously taking place in his head where Zed, uh, Riz Ahmed's character in the film, is castigated by a black British rapper for cultural appropriation, right? Because of the 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 artistic medium he is choosing to express himself. And the, these are all woven all the way throughout the film in terms of how do you express that? How do you take into account other people's opinions about how should you express it? Should you worry about things such as cultural appropriation in doing that? Is that okay? To what extent is it okay? Is a very densely packed film. Um, and for me, I got a lot out of it on that level. Um, I think the the musician stuff, I think is Elsie, I think that's, that's an important part as well. And I think that's maybe the part that brings it together, right? Because one of the things that struck me about the scenes where he's performing his material is it's very personal material. And it is actually Riz Ahmed's material, right? He's released an album with tracks that are featured in this film. And it's very personal material talking about his own experiences, in particular of being um, a British Pakistani. And they're intensely personal, but he's been watched by a massive crowd, right? And the way that, they, the way that these, con- these concerts are shot, the light is right on him. And you know the crowd is there, but it's just it's very internal to him. Yet you've got a crowd whooping and cheering. So it's it's this performative aspect of it as well in terms of, you know, how much do you express? How much do you keep to yourself? I find it an absolutely fascinating film, to be honest. Um, and I'm very, again, I'm very interested to see what people make of it at large. Um, I agree with Elle in the sense that it could take you a while to get into the pace of it, particularly when it starts to to focus on the hospital scenes. But to me, there's a lot of really interesting ideas there. Whether they all weave together perfectly at every point, that's a different question. But I think there's a lot to be a lot to be picked out of this film that's really interesting. Yeah, I I, I loved, re- I like, enjoyed reading up about the Toba texting part of it afterwards because you do see this kind of like hallucinatory aspects and there's a lot of cultural referencing that, yeah, as a white British woman, I have no idea about. And it's really interesting because you learn a lot about the identity of other cultures and also that complexity of identity in himself, like managing that a bit similarly to St. Maud having that internalization, externalization of who you are, how you feel, where you come from, where you are now, that is very difficult to manage because it's one of the things that I think, it's why you can see this crisis building up inside of him because he's obviously, he's found out some new news about stuff. He's got his career to worry about, his family are there. And then he's having these kind of visionary parts of it as well. And I think that's once again, a remarkable way of, helping shape a person and that makes the film thick with content and context and there's a lot to unpack but I think films with this much ambition and wanting to tell these kind of levels of stories with so many layers is exciting it's interesting it's new and I think once as long as it gets enough word out I think it could it would go it would get really big over here I really hope it would I think this is a film that a lot of British audiences probably haven't seen before. I'm saying it was kind of British Pakistani film as well. And I think hopefully it does get the coverage that it deserves because I think Basin Tarek's got a lot to talk about. And I think he's got a lot of potential as well. 
like I want to see more of his work now because of this um so I think we'll leave it there for Mogul Mowgli um I was very impressed with it. I think it's a film definitely worth checking out when it does come out, uh, which I'm expecting to be October 30th. The BFI have picked it up for distribution in the UK and Ireland. So whether exactly, I don't know whether it'll be going digitally or in cinemas or what will happen, but it will be getting some distribution pretty soon and you should check out when that happens. First of all, thank you for the film. I saw it as part of the Toronto Film Festival. Um, so I, I was really keen to speak to you about it when I, when I saw that it was playing at London as well. The, the first thing I want to ask you was really just how you arrived at the story, in particular, the backdrop elements relating to the political situation on the Irish border, right? Because there's a lot of parallels being drawn between the, the sisters' history and their relationship, and then obviously a lot of the stuff which you focus on the background with murals lingering on the British flag, things like that. I was wondering, I was basically just wondering how you came to that, yeah. that story basically in drawing those parallels. Well, um, I guess firstly, it really started with uh, the actor's energy. Uh, Nika nor Jane haven't worked with them separately. I was just really fascinated about finding the vehicle to really explore the depths of their ability. And I, you know, having worked with them separately, they both had an incredible ability to be vulnerable and fierce. And they're like opposite ends of the scale. So we we spent a couple of weeks talking back and forth about finding the right story. And sibling stories made sense, you know, two fierce sisters right at the front of this film. And we began researching true stories of siblings. And we wanted to ground it in the truth. And we came across the Erickson twin sisters story um, and the documentary Madness in the Fast Lane. And without you know giving too much of the film away, there's a key event that happens within that documentary that really shook us. And it's a, quite an extreme event. And for us, we wanted to understand what would lead two sisters to that extreme act. And you know, as we began research, we had the Welcome Trust come on board and we began re- researching what a shared psychosis was, what a psychosis is. And we realized that in psychosis, the past becomes present. So all of a sudden I realized I needed to understand what was going on because it's a trauma that's related in the past that brings itself to the present. And I'm from Northern Ireland. So I started researching about traumas locally. And, you know, you know, I, I grew up, I was 11 when the Good Friday Agreement happened. So I just had a little sense of living through the troubles, but then peacetimes. I realized there's trauma within that that's mm. yet to be understood and assimilated. And as I started looking at facts, I realized that we have the highest suicide rates in Europe. Um, more people have died in Northern Ireland uh, due to suicide rather than the troubles, which is shocking. And we have the highest uh, uses of antidepressant in the world. And that made me go, whoa, there is serious trauma here to be explored. And, and I realized that, um, that there was a legacy that needed to be told. And we began this five years ago before even Brexit was on the horizon. So it was never my intention to tie these two elements together. It just so happened as time was moving forward and the border became more fractious um, that, you know, it was part of the landscape and part of, you know, the, the murals, the faded murals is because they exist. And, you know, I'm living back in Uri now at the moment and I've seen a, a freshly painted paramilitary sign, which I haven't seen since I was, mm. I was a kid. And so all these things are happening without 
ever intending for it to put it all together. And the thing is, when you make a film, you can't help but other people then to bring their own comparisons. And I think it is difficult making a, a film that's both of a female perspective and Troubles related because the legacy of Troubles films are male orientated. Yeah. And it's about, you know, paramilitary, thriller, espionage. You know, th this film is not this. This film is about two sisters. It's about the everyday. It's about the everyday and living through trauma that you don't realize is part of your past and you don't realize is part of your present. And that's what this film is about. You know, it's really about this intense sibling bond before it's about anything else. Yeah, no, and I I appreciate that backdrop to it with the, as you say, that sort of the, the, the sister, the bond of the sisters being at the forefront. Because as you say, stuff with the troubles in the background, it does tend to be kind of spy dramas, thrillers, as you say. Um, one thing I was wanting to ask was how would you describe what you were looking for in the roles um that Nora Jane Noon and Nicky McGuigan um took on because or or how did you workshop that with them because with a slightly wrong pitch and performance it could come off with a very different tone to what is achieved in the film so I was wondering how you spoke about that with the two of them to get the, the right kind of tenor, I suppose, of performance that you were looking for in the film? Well, Nika um, had this incredible ability to be, she had the real purity of, of thought and emotion, which was almost kind of innocent and childlike. And I don't mean in an immature sense, I mean in a pure sense. And uh, she, didn't, she didn't care what other people thought of her in some ways. And she wore her heart in her sleeve, which was incredibly brave. And... Um, there was something about Nora Jane is like that that she had this um, ability to to go to uh, somewhere kind of uh, dark and dangerous and and yet it was much more guarded. And I thought, wow, what happens if you know you put those two elements together and how they would unleash each other? Mm. So it really was an instinctual energy thing first, and it often it's very hard to put words on these things. It's an instinct thing. And I realized that, um, you know, Kelly from the art front needs to be almost feral and wild. So in a sense, Nika went off and she, you know, it made sense for her to be part of an environmental activist kind of background, but she doesn't fit anywhere. So she's no. not those things either. She's a drifter. She's lost and she's running from her past, but it's common for her. Whereas uh, Nora Jean is someone who, uh, with her character, she was looking for stability but ultimately that stability is suffocating. And, you know, whenever she, she reaches that crisis point that the freedom that unleashes and the danger that unleashes mm. is how that is intoxicating. The last thing I'm going to ask you about, um, the use of colour, now in particular red, right, to draw a straight line through the symbolic elements and also what has actually, you know, really happened to the sisters and the themes that tie it together. Was that something you envisaged during the writing process or is that something that's come more after you've started to think about how to tile, tie the whole work together visually? I was just wondering at what point that came in because it's a very strong thread through the whole film, I found. Um, I think the, the, the idea of the red coat uh, came quite early because the idea we wanted the mother to be this iconic figure and the idea that she would walk around a small town Ireland in a fancy coat it had to pop she had to pop and she had to kind of you know I always imagined her with red lipstick and looking like a bit of a Hollywood starlet and how people would judge her on that so it made sense 
you know, to put her in like a scarlet red jacket. And, you know, when we, when we originally meant to shoot this film, it was in the summer and we, we it drifted into the autumn and all of a sudden the season started changing. You had these golden greens and ambers and all of a sudden you got this sense of autumnal and fiery colors. So all of a sudden, like the season was offering up an incredible palette for us. Um, so it, it was a mixture of kind of preparation and fate. How have you, um, this is something I've been asking a lot of people recently, how have you found debuting this film during what has become a very, I mean, the very fact that this interview is happening over Zoom, um, very digital-led festival season, like, how have you found that compared to your experience of kind of festivals I, I, I mean, or anything like that? It's very, it's very strange in some sense because it all feels very surreal. Like, did the film actually play? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Is this real life? Um, but like, there is something very surreal and slightly removed about it as an experience. But on the other hand, like, I can't help but be incredibly grateful that it's getting seen because I think, you know, um, right now the festivals have made such a small selection of work they can make available. So to be part of that small selection for say Toronto or London, it's it's I'm incredibly grateful, um, and. For me, I, I think like it equally might be very difficult to sit with an audience and watch this film in person. And I know that day will come, but I kind of feel like it's uh, I'm really grateful it's getting out there. And in time, I really enjoy the experience of sitting and having that communal experience and hearing people laugh and gasp and cry and and being different. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I think I need to I need to wrap up there. But it's a great film. So thank you oh, for thank making you. it. And I, I hope it has a lot of success on future festivals and when it eventually gets out. Thanks, Amelia. Cheers. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Bye. Kathy. Cheers. Okay, so we're back, and I'm here with Tallulah McCowan Hill, who's part of the Edinburgh Spanish Film Festival. She runs social media marketing. Uh, Tallulah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, and congratulations for your crowdfunding for Cinescapes. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Um, so Spanish Film Festival has been around for a while, but um, it's taking a new change this this year. Um, tell me a little bit about the Spanish Film Festival and its role in Edinburgh over the years. Um, so, yeah, the Spanish Film Festival started. It's been running since 2014. Um, and I guess the the kind of the route, the initial um, beginnings of it was because uh, the creator, um, Marianne, um, who who is Spanish, saw that there there was other um, like language film festivals, but there wasn't a Spanish one. Um, and she kind of she's always loved cinema, um, so she thought she would start one up. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it's how it all began great and you've been involved with it for quite a few years so you've kind of seen various different programs and and how how do you kind of curate how does the um festival kind of curate its its program every year um so it's kind of like uh quite a long process um all these things are um i guess the the funding is one of the main things um doing applications and um, actually getting it. I mean, it's, it's all like the intention is there, but if you don't have the, the backing, like as you must know yourself, it's hard to do anything. So 
I think the longest um, process is the funding and then the choosing the films. Um, I'm not involved in that, um, like that part of the process, even though this year, um, because it's all been online, then I have been able to kind of see the films before and maybe suggest some. But yeah, I mean, every year it's just, you know, the same, the same um, kind of process, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's, that's kind of how it goes. Great. And in, in previous years, it was at the Edinburgh Film House. Is that where most of it, or it's also at the university? So like, do you have like Q&As or events or is it always at the Edinburgh Film House or, or where, where's kind of, where was your home? Yeah. So the home base um, is the, the Film House, as you said. So yeah, we, thanks to them, we've been able to do it. Um, and we have done um, events at the university, like during the year, we kind of do crowdfunding events where we might have, we might screen a film and then have maybe like a, a food and wine tasting event. And we have been able to do those at university. Um, but then the main festival itself has always been at Film House, but obviously this year, just with the restricted measures and, um, you know, a lot of people still on furlough, unfortunately, we just thought it would be easier um, to do everything online. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know Film House kind of has, um, I, I don't, were you usually in the cinema one or were you in cinema two? Because I feel like that's also, they've had like a, a limited amount of, of cinemas that they can open. These yeah. So um, we were in, in both. So it just depended on the film and if it was like the weekend or um, during the week. So yeah, I think unfortunately they've got quite limited capacity, which is a shame. Um, but obviously there's nothing they can do about that. So um, yeah, it's online. So hopefully we'll be able to, I guess, get a bigger outreach. Um, and that also it's open to the whole of the UK. So um, that kind of broadens our spectrum of audience, um, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're kind of like two thirds in by the time mm -hmm. this podcast uh, airs, but um, yeah. tell me a little bit about the program this year and um, yeah, like what's on offer and, and sort of, I'm just curious if some of it's like available through the whole time or how you're kind of structuring your online program. Yeah, so um, we are doing it through a streaming platform that we've hired to work with um, called River Events, just because of like terms of like piracy and the links and you know, the films have to be protected. So they are all available to watch, most of them 48 hours over their program days. Um, so we've been running over three weekends um, and we've kind of got a whole different, quite a big um, variety of films and that's kind of how we, we like to do it. So we have something for everyone, I guess. Um, and we, we have quite a big focus on bringing um, new directors, like having their debut films and also uh, like women in cinema and just projecting um, films directed by, by women as well. Um, and we also have documentaries. I believe we have five this year, um, as well as a series of short films. And um, this year as well, we actually have a, a monologues project that um, 
was done in Spain during the lockdown. So they reached out to us and asked if, if we would be interested. And um, yeah, it is some, we always like to try and promote other, you know, cultural um, things, be it something like um, theater, whatever it is. And um, we're quite open to, to show, to screen things, new things. That's fantastic. And as a group, you said you're relatively a small, um, a small festival team. Um, how hard was it to take the program that you maybe had originally intended? Or did you already know? I mean, did, did you kind of expect that you would be going online? And how, how you know, how, how has that really shifted what your, your plans are? Um, yeah, I guess we kind of in the back of our minds, we knew that it wouldn't probably wouldn't be possible to to be in the cinema um but it has been it has been a challenge um because kind of just I mean I would well before I took it for granted how you know watching things online there's actually so much that logistically has to go into it um and so it's been it's been fine and I think we've learned a lot um the main team's kind of like four of us, um, four or five of us. So, um, yeah, kind of really missing the, the actual festival experience though, because even though we've, we've been able to, and we still have a few Q and A's, um, which will be available to be seen in the next weekend. It isn't the same, like, you know, being able to speak to people and hear their reactions of films, like after, or speak to the directors about the, or like filmmakers about the, the making process. When you've only got 20 minutes on Zoom, it's, it's quite limited what you can actually speak about. So um, it's, it's very different. Um, but yeah, I'm still, I'm still glad we did it, you know, cause the option if not is what, to not do it. And that's, you know, we should be trying to support cinema as much as possible in this time, I guess. Absolutely. And um, I, yeah, on that note, you, you mentioned it, it, it was, it's quite a lot we don't think about. And we learned that with a Cinetopia doc program in August, which we were thrilled to be part of. Mm-hmm. And but just to learn how to run online events, it's just kind of surprising how much work it is to run an online event, um, especially if you're adding Q and A's and like inviting uh filmmakers. So how has that process been like kind of learning how to put on an online festival? Um, Good, like definitely I've learned a lot. I can't say I'm the most um, like technology kind of savvy person. So I have learned um, a lot. But it's all even just like the the smallest things of like explaining how everything works and the like logistics of how it's going to work because also our Q&As, a lot of them are in Spanish. We've we've, um, actually been able to get translators, interpreters, sorry, um, from Harriet Watt University who have, um, it's been like great of them to, to do that for us. Um, but even like learning how to do that over Zoom, um, I guess as well, just the the relationship with the, you know, directors um, or we've um, like other people who we've featured in the festival, it just isn't, it isn't the same. 
um, and also just having to with the streaming platform who are setting it up for us like everything has to be done over email you know it's so much easier if you can just have a quick meeting in person and back and forth because we've got everything in Spanish and English we've had to translate that all as well um, and yeah and just even we before we had programs we had posters that like we've not been able to have any of that so it's finding alternative um forms of like marketing your festival um but like i do have to say what's been good is that um i think that there's been a lot of other festivals as well like the shorts festival and um in scotland it's quite nice how we've kind of been able to like help share each other's things and even the cinescapes like you know there's a lot going on so it's good to kind of work together in that sense yeah absolutely and i think you brought up some really good points at the beginning too about the fact that you know you're open to the uk now so i you know you have the ability to kind of and you already have a large audience of you know spanish-speaking spanish community in edinburgh who already love how have you kind of seen so far i know you're kind of we're kind of in the middle but like have you seen audiences or have you been able to kind of look at the data how the audience maybe has changed or it's maybe grown or has there been these positive things that come out of this um this situation that's not very positive yeah we've definitely um just we've had i've seen that we've been able to kind of reach a, a broader audience and um, just through like met um you know people messaging being like can i watch the film from london from manchester like even though it is uk wide just people confirming um we've also had people like from random places like canada asking us but obviously the geolocation is just to the uk um so in that sense um it's been great and uh, we also do a schools program so usually schools would come to the film house um, and they would watch film and we'd do a workshop with them um so we've had we've been able to you know do a schools program as well obviously in a different format like they've been watching the films at school but um it's good that we've still been able to do that because i know that's something that they looked forward to and it's quite a nice break from like usual language learning um so in that sense yeah it's been it's been great i mean i guess we'll have to evaluate at the end of the festival you know when we have all the can go through all the stats and analysis of everything yeah absolutely and i mean i think one of the things that's interesting is that you know, some people are kind of looking as Cinescapes is, is like, what, what would a future festival look like if, if we could have the benefits of the online community that's happening, but also the benefits, as you said, of that festival experience in the film house, which is the best way to see a film in my humble yeah. opinion. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, What's still in store for the Spanish Film Festival? You still have some, as people are listening to this, um, they still have time to engage this year in the festival. And uh, yeah, what's in store this weekend? Yeah, so there's, it's actually quite a full-on weekend um, because as well, we've got it just on the weekend. So we've kind of jam-packed it um, a little bit, but we've got, you've, we've got um, a dot, every year we do like a food, a foodie kind of film. Um, and we usually do a foodie event where we would do like a food tasting or 
but again that's that's not um been possible so we have a documentary on called living in silence on um a self-taught chef from the basque country um, and his restaurants made it to like the third best in the world or something which is crazy considering it's just you know he taught himself um and we also have um some feature films we have the innocence which is um a debut film as well it's um i really recommend that one kind of a story about a girl um facing adulthood and the kind of troubles and you know obstacles that come with that um and then we also have spider which i really recommend um it's a it's based in Chile in the 1970s and it's kind of about the overthrow of the Allende government. Um, it's a thriller, so I guess a lot of that kind of a lot of people might like that kind of film. Um, and, you know, some people might be looking for not very intense viewing right now. So that's quite a good one. Um, and we also have we have this project um, and audiovisual project called Cartas Vivas and I think this is something quite interesting an alternative to film um, it's kind of like a it's an audiovisual library of um, Spanish actresses uh, reading like letters and thoughts of Spanish and Latin American women from the 20th century so it's kind of these women who didn't have their place um, their words weren't heard then they're kind of being brought to life now. So it's not a film, but um, I think it's something quite interesting to watch and also um, kind of proof of the, the different, like how different things you can do um, in the audiovisual world. Um, and we also have our monologues project as well. So, you know, if someone wants an alternative to film, then we've got that and a couple other films again once again and the plan which are also i've you know i think that weekend's one of the best it's quite quite a lot of genres and then we also have q and a's as well um with some of the directors so yeah quite mm -hmm. a lot and so how how do you like you said there was an event there was like a platform that you um do you, it, it buy the tickets or, or whatnot but um how would one kind of get to festival central and and get to these films festival central so um you can do it through um our website which is just the edinburgh spanish film festival and that will lead you to um how you can buy the tickets um it's all we've tried to make it as clear as possible because i know it can be really confusing to you know, have to do everything online. If not just our social media, we've got Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And that's again, just the Edinburgh Spanish Film, Film Festival. Um, so yeah, on, on any, and if there's any questions or anything, um, you can ask across any of those social media platforms. Well, great, Tallulah, thank you so much for joining us. And um, no worries, thanks. Really looking forward to catching the rest of the Spanish Film Festival. Thank you very much.
So as is customary on the Cinetopia podcast and our love of short films and also a plug for the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, which is coming up in November. So be sure to check out their website. We'll send the link there. It's a new host of films in Edinburgh, which they are actually running in person at Summer Hall. So, um, you know, get a ticket and uh, if you if you if you want. Anyway, we always highlight films that you can watch online um, that are shorts that um, that our team agrees uh, are worth checking out. So passing it off to Stephanie, who is on our show for the first time, and to let us know what shorts she recommends uh, to check out. Thank you, Amanda. Um, I would like to recommend um, a short that's really accessible online. I think the director actually, um, I've not, this is the only thing that I've seen um, from him, but I think he has his own Vimeo page where he uploads um, shorts quite continuously. So if you like, I think it's quite, he's quite accessible to check out a lot more of his work. Um, the short that um, I've seen is um, called the At the End of the Cul-de-Sac. And it's um, it's really short, it's only about um, 10 minutes long, but it's sort of, um, it's quite an intense look at how people kind of react to public meltdowns and, and breakdowns and how um, how these kind of things can become almost in our society become, become kind of a show for everyone and how everyone um, feels quite um, feels quite um, disturbed by um, kind of emotional behavior in public and it's, it's quite interesting and it's, it's shot really it's shot really um, quite Hitchcock ropey it's all done in one take it's going around and it's it it's it's not really I don't think there's any cuts in it at all I think it's just one long take which just makes it really interesting because you're kind of um sort of chasing the camera and chasing the lens around um the whole time that it's going on it, it's quite um it, it, it for um what it, for how short it is it's really effective in, in the message it kind of wants to, to kind of translate for everyone so I I think if um I think um, if anyone's interested in, especially the technical aspects of these kind of films are done in sort of um, um, short takes or it's, it's good to check out. It's definitely something that um, I would recommend. So it's available at um, Film Shortage. And um, so you can check it out there. I think they have a lot of different shorts on there as well. Um, and as I said, I think the director Paul Trillo has his has a Vimeo page. I don't have any and anything else I can recommend. But if you if you do enjoy that, you can check that out. Great. And Jim, you had a recommendation as well this week. Yeah. Well, it's more. Well, I think I'm also making a note to actually prepare better for the segment because uh, I've been I've been I've been very lax. I've been very Noted. lax recently. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'll be more on it from next month onwards. Um, one thing. It's not really a recommendation because I haven't seen it. Um, but it's one to keep an eye out for is Pedro Almodovar has a, a longish short, uh, which played at London Film Festival, 30 minutes long, uh, The Human Voice starring Tilda Swinton. Um, as I say, I haven't seen it myself, but a lot of people whose opinions I respect have seen it and they liked it a great deal. Um, it's said to be getting a release in the UK on the 6th of November. Now, what form that will take, I don't know. I presume it will maybe play before some shorter features. Um, so it's one to keep an eye out for. Um, as I say, I've not seen it, but Pedro Almodovar is a filmmaker I'm a big fan of. Uh, we really, really liked his last film, Paid in Glory, on the show. Um, so, yeah, I would keep an eye out for that one. And I will come prepared with an actual full recommendation of something I've watched next month. Well, I mean, it is interesting that we've been seeing a lot of 
pretty well-known filmmakers going back and making shorts and, you know, premiering them at major festivals. So to, and then, you know, there's going to be like a short segment, or I don't know if it has yet because I've been busy trying to watch these films in the cinema or, you know, like planning, but I mean, even Netflix is planning kind of a short a lot of folk have a lot of like big name directors have put ones didn't Yorgos Lanthimos have a short yeah Yorgos Lanthimos did and it was part of the um it was actually I mean it was originally premiered elsewhere but it was also showed at the World of Film International Film Festival that we're kind of colleagues with and also the Jonathan Glazer just Mm -hmm. recently created a short film um that was released uh a movie as well so like there's there's just an an interesting take that you know you think of the short film as you know as where you cut your teeth if you will as a filmmaker but it's it's lovely that directors who have you know have well-established careers are looking at that medium and because i've always said especially with documentaries there are some films and certain certain stories that really should be told in a short film length and it doesn't need a feature film and just because you're a celebrated filmmaker doesn't mean you can't go back to you know to a separate length or whatnot so that's why we continue to suggest and highlight and and we will continue as well so thanks so much All right. Well, that is our show for October. Thank you so much to everyone who's joined us. Elle, uh, tell us what you're up to for the next month. Um, So just carrying on with my master's um, and we're doing a lot of work in film archiving, which I actually know very little about, which is me fascinating and prepping up for my dissertation about the politics of the Berlinale Film Festival. So as on brand, lots more film related work for me. Oh, wow. Um, that sounds really <laughs> exciting, actually. I'm very curious about your um, your plans with the Berlin Alley. Have you, I, I assume you've been, but um, are, do you know what their plans are? You don't know yet what their plans are for this year? So I've been twice and it is, yeah, my favourite festival, which is why I'm focusing on it. Um, as far as we are aware, it is going ahead next year. And I think it's probably going to follow something similar to a Venice layout. We don't know yet. I mean, they have they have multiple venues very big venues so it'll probably be limited because it's the biggest publicly attended festival like for a big old film festival they'll probably reduce press and public uh, public numbers have some kind of virtual thing but if the world isn't still completely um on fire then it should be going ahead in february but um i will let you know and fill you in on that hopefully in a February episode (laughs) no that's exciting I'm looking forward to hearing more and Stephanie thank you so much for joining us um in this that your first time on the Cinetopia podcast hopefully not the last um what's your plans for the next uh month or so um well I've just um started a sort of newsletter to talk about kind of hidden films and more arty films that have kind of dropped below the radar and I got an opportunity to do um to review um Matchbox Cinema's sort of Tales from the Winnipeg about the the Winnipeg co-op film group and things like that so that's sort of the angle I'm trying to do just now and trying to kind of draw more exposure on um films that have kind of been lost like lost classics from um all through the eras so that's kind of and 
just sending um, pitches to many um, film and magazines just now and um, keeping on that kind of representing art house cinema has been the main focus. But um, I think that uh, with when when we do um, when we working with Take One, kind of you get the opportunity to see a lot of um, much more um, underground film festival things. You know, it's 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 the perfect hub to kind of join if you want to be exposed to much more independent film and that's sort of the, the route that I'm trying to go down um consistently through the year that's fantastic and I did see one of the pieces part of the tales of Winnipeg so really great um series and really really fantastic very interesting things that you're working on so thanks for sharing uh Jim how about you um more film festivals need to get a bunch of them in a room together and bang some heads and tell them to spread out across the year quite frankly um so as as we're recording, I'm actually trying to do a bit of coverage of Chicago Film Festival. Um, got a couple of screeners from that, and I'm on the press list for that. So we'll see what's there. There's quite a lot of interesting films, some of which were at Toronto and London, but I didn't get a chance to see there. So this is also kind of another opportunity to try and kind of you know catch that bus before it kind of flies past me. Uh, and then there's Rain Dance after that, uh, which has got a fully online thing. And there's a lot of things I want to check out there, including a, a biopic of David Bowie, um, which, as we all know, he died at the start of 2016 and the world has gone completely to shit since then. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So that's also part of my interest there. So, yeah, th- th- again, lots of film, lots of different film festivals. Um, and obviously, at some point, we're going to have the Edinburgh Short Film Festival popping up again. Yeah, coming up in November, which will be quite exciting as well. So absolutely. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for joining. And um, just so you, just a reminder, check out cinetopiashow.com to, uh, the, like I said, I'll put a link to the survey. I'd love to hear from you. Also, just always feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think, your comments, whether you agreed with our criticism or not of these films. Um, we're at Cinetopia Hub on instagram and at cinetopia on twitter and you can always email us at cinetopiashow at gmail.com thanks again see you next month